Hello out there in podcast land, and welcome to February's initial installment. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for this era that we're living in, this time frame that you've chosen us for, this soon return of your son for all of his followers. I thank you, Lord God, for giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, giving us a heart that's discerning. I thank you, Lord God, for helping us understand and apply your words and have it be a part of every aspect of our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, podcast uh, number one for the month of February. February is known for Black History Month. February is known for Valentine's Day. Uh, February is known for love. And uh, let me just say this. Um, this isn't going to be about racism and races and stuff like that. But as far as going with one month out of 12 Black History Month, I think that's very, very important. Even more important than that is uh, hopefully more and more people are uh, beginning to just show each other love, and especially African-American people, because I think they're the most marginalized people group in the history of our country. I mean, we took away the land from the Indians, but we didn't enslave them. Um, maybe some people, some ranchers took them as slaves or whatever they did, but you know, they were butchering them and killing them, our ancestors, and taking their lands from them and putting them on reservations and just pushing them away. But I think 400 years of kidnapping them from Africa and selling them like furniture and then enslaving them and abusing them. I think um, that's about as bad as you can treat a human being. So, um, yeah, I hope people are learning to love them um, more and more and pay attention to Black History Month and just not to take a guilt trip on, not to try to make reparations for our Foolish ancestors, you can't make reparations. Only God can make those reparations. Um, how can you give how can you give them back four hundred years of lost wages, lost family units, you know, lost relatives? Uh, you can't. That's gotta be God. And uh, that's what this is all about. Because love is like I said, the thing that stands out in February because right smack in the middle of the month just about. Well, actually, it is most of the time because there's only 28 days and sometimes 29. But the 14th day, halfway through, is the love day, the Valentine's Day. And you go and get your Valentine, all the chocolate she or he can eat, and flowers and take them out to dinner and treat them really good. And hopefully that carries throughout the whole year. Wink, wink. We know that it doesn't. But it's a thought and maybe a consideration. Anyway, I want to talk about love because love is so multifaceted and bigger than life itself because God himself is love. You see, love forgives, love restores, love releases, love repairs, love renews, love feeds, love heals, love delivers, love protects, love supports, love defends, love blesses, and I could go on and on because God is everywhere and God is love. God is omni, omnipotent. God, God is omniscient, uh, all-knowing. God is everywhere, all at the same time. 
And so love is in the air, and especially when we kind of pay attention to it because the holiday demands it, because the Hallmark cards are everywhere, and because the chocolate's on the sidewalk being sold, and flowers and roses are in people's hands on every street corner in the cities trying to get people to buy up all of their Valentine's things. And so one of the things I want to say about Jesus, Jesus loves everybody. He didn't just love everybody. He still does. He loves everybody, and so should we. And we got to start with forgiveness. You see, because I believe that the only unforgivable sin in the entire Bible that God talks about over in Matthew chapter 12 is unforgiveness. Because if we don't forgive, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you, your sins and your trespasses. And so we got to start right there. We need to forgive each other. We need to forgive. I, 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 remember, I remember one time I had a counseling appointment with this guy. He was in the Vietnam War and he came back and, you know, he was having trouble keeping a job and he was a good truck driver. He had a truck driving job um, before he went to the war in Vietnam and then he came back and he had his job and he had a wife now and a kid, a couple of kids, I think. And he was having a hard time, you know, keeping bread on the table and everything. And so immediately when I'm sitting there talking to him, God it revealed to me he's you know, he's in unforgiveness. And I said, God just told me something about you. And he said, what? That you're in unforgiveness. He said, I don't, I'm not in unforgiveness. I, I love everybody. Oh, yeah? And then God told me what it was. I said, you hate this country. You hate this country because this country um, made you go fight a war you didn't believe in and do things you never would have done. And it wounded you inside and it scarred you inside. And he started shaking his head and he started crying. And so I ministered to him, prayed with him, and he forgave this country for doing that to him. And his trucking business just completely busted out. That was the key. And so I'm going to read some verses from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. And there's from the Passion Translation. It's going to be really kind of interesting the way that it comes across because it's different. Um... Because the guy that wrote the mirror translation, just like the guy that wrote the passion translation, uh, they had emphasis. You know, the mirror translation is one, another one I'm going to use in this session. And it tries to reflect our image in Christ in, in every page because it, 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 the guy can see it there. You know, it's like an emphasis that God gave him by the Holy Spirit. And so he brought that out in a translation. And the passion is to see the passion of God in all these areas of our reading and all these areas of the study of God's words that people uh, so tediously uh, try to understand and, and, and decl declension of the nouns and verbs and and parsing of all the different sentences and context and trying to figure out exactly what did God mean. Well, you see, these things, they're making no pretenses. They know that God meant, in one sense, the reflection of ourselves in Christ, in another sense, the passion of the Father's heart, and also other things. Other translations, like the Amplified, it amplifies, you know, the statements in every sentence, you know, that tries to amplify what it sees is most important. So the Passion Translation, right here in verse 27 of Luke 6, But I say unto you who hear, love your enemies and do something wonderful for them in return for their hatred. Wow. Think about that. 
do something wonderful for them in return for their hatred. Verse 28, when someone curses you, bless that person in return. When others mistreat and harass you, accept it as your mission to pray for them. Verse 29, to those who despise you, continue to serve them and minister to them. If someone takes away your coat, give him as a gift your shirt as well. I'm just going to separate these verses from the context. Um, The context is about forgiving and giving and a combination of two because when you're forgiving, you're actually giving. You're giving in your forgiveness. You're giving things that do not um, merit what reflects the way that they've been treating you or that, that you have been thought of. And so it's completely counterculture. It's completely a new initiative. And so he's saying, love your enemies. Well, you see, if we have enemies that are witches and warlocks, and there are, there are enemies of the cross that are witches, that put curses on people. I've been attacked by that. Um, It says, love them and do something wonderful for them in return for their hatred. You know, I, I... in, in the name of love, even that Jesus, you know, did so, he cursed a fig tree and it withered and died. And he gave him a lesson, you know, about how if you speak unto anything in faith that is an obstruction or is an aberration, in other words, it's not producing what it's supposed to be, what it was designed to do, um, and you curse it, uh, things will happen in the unseen realm that shows up in the seen realm. And he says, if you speak to this sycamine tree or this mountain, be plucked up and cast in the sea, it'll obey you. And so Jesus is teaching things, you know, but also Jesus, he's teaching to love your enemies. He said, Don't just throw curses on people that are evil and evildoers and, and that are little demoniacs running around. I mean, if you want to help them out, cast the devil out and bring the Holy Spirit to them. Verse 28 says, when someone curses you, bless that person in return. When others mistreat and harass you, accept it as your mission to pray for them. And verse 29 says, to those who despise you, continue to serve them and minister to them. If someone takes away your coat, give him as a gift also your shirt as well. Interesting. And so what are you doing? You're setting something in motion. You're setting something in motion that Jesus said it like this, that if they hit you on the one cheek, turn and give them the other cheek also. Okay? Um, they may have had a, a reason to hit you on the cheek. And you give them the other side, now they don't have a reason. In other words, what Jesus is looking for is that you can indebt people by you giving them love, which means that they're not indebted to you, they're indebted to God. And then when you say your prayers for them, God is able to get involved because God has got an open door into their heart and their life because they have placed themselves in debt to him because the way they treated you. That's why we're not to retaliate. That's why we're not to hold it in our heart and hate on people. That's why we're to cut them loose like this and do them good. And people say, well, it's going to be hot coals and burning fire on their head. No, 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 no. Don't think about, you know, hurting them, torturing them, burning them, or even uh, pricking their conscience. Don't think about it like that. Think about it like a love trap. You know, God's going to snare, uh, you know, people that are out of control, that are detrimental to themselves and to society, and they don't know it, and they can't help themselves. Well, he's going to catch them. He's going to catch them. You know, you got to outfox the fox. 
in verse 32, same chapter, verse 32, are you really showing true love by loving only those who love you? Even those who don't know God will do that. Verse 33, are you really showing compassion when you do good deeds only those who do good deeds to you? Even those who don't know God do that. And then look at verse 35, please. Verse 35 says, Rather, love your enemies and continue to treat them well. When you lend money, don't despair if you are never paid back, for it is not lost. You will receive a rich reward, and you will be known as true children of the Most High God, having his same nature. Be like your father who is famous for his kindness to heal even the thankless and the cruel. You see that? It's like, no, that can't be. We, we, no, we got a, a war going on. We got people that hate us. We got to put up barriers and barbed wire. We got to go to work. We got to pronounce curses that reverse their curse. Um, there's nothing more powerful than love. Nothing more counter curse than love. Nothing more destructive to hatred than goodness. Verse 36, overflow with mercy and compassion for others, just as your Heavenly Father overflows with mercy and compassion for all. And so we got to start right there. If love is in the air, we got, we, we got to forgive. If it's people that hurt you way back when you were a kid and they're gone now, you need to cut them loose and forgive them. You may have carried it for a long time, didn't ever hear a message like this, didn't know better than to release them. Because, you, look, I know people. I grew up with people. I have relatives that turned into the very father that was alcoholic and that beat them for no good reason. They turned into the same man because they couldn't let it go. They never forgave him. Even their mother tried to get them to come to the, bed, the bedside of their dying father so he could, he could ask for their forgiveness, and it didn't happen. And these guys all turned out for the worse. And that's what happened. You know, we had a little saying when I was growing up. I don't know if you had it in your part of the woods that you grew up. It was like, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you says bounces off of me and sticks to you. Well, if I'm Mr. Forgiveness and you're Mr. Um, hold on, well, then I am truly rubber and you are glue. Because if you're holding on to things, it's sticking to you. And so you got to let it go. And the very person and persons that have hurt you, I don't think you want to turn into the same person. Obviously not. And so we just got to look at it that the important factor of, of forgiveness is essential. Matthew chapter 18, please turn there. Once again, the Passion Translation, Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. I'm going to read like 12, 13 verses. It says, the lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated like this. There was once a king who had servants who had borrowed money from the royal treasury. He decided to settle accounts with each of them. As he began to process, as he began the process, it came to his attention that one of his servants owed him a billion dollars. So he summoned the servants before him and said to him, pay me what you owe me. When his servant was unable to repay his debt, the king ordered that he be sold as a slave, along with his wife and children, every possession they owned as payment towards his debt. Verse 26, the servant threw himself face down at his master's feet and begged for mercy. Please be patient with me. Just give me more time and I'll repay you all that I owe. 
Verse 27, upon hearing his pleas, the king had compassion on his servant and released him and forgave his entire debt. And forgave his entire debt. Hold on to that thought. Verse 28, no sooner had the servant left when he met one of his fellow servants who owed him $20,000. He seized him by the throat and began to choke him, saying, you better pay me right now everything you owe me. Verse 29, his fellow servant threw him face down at his feet and begged, please be patient with me. If you'll just give me time, I'll repay you all that is owed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It is. Verse 30, but the one who had his debt forgiven stubbornly refused to forgive what was owed him. He had his fellow servant thrown into prison and demanded he remain there until he repaid the debt in full. Verse 31, when his associates saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to the king and told him the whole story. The king said to him, you scoundrel, is this the way you res respond to my mercy? Because you begged me, I forgave you the massive debt you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to your fellow servant that I showed you? Mm, mm, mm. We can sit right there for a while. We've been showed great mercy, great kindness, great love. And you just think about it for a second. Why aren't we showing it to other people? Verse 34, in a fury of anger, the king turned him over to the prison guards. The king represents God. He had to do this because he had to, he had to punish him because the man, you notice that when he said, why didn't you show the same mercy? He wasn't repentant. He didn't say, okay, I'm sorry, I will. In a fury of anger, the king turned him over to a prison guard to be tortured until all his debt was repaid. What, he owed that one billion again? Nope. When God forgives, he forgives. It's gone. You don't go back and get that one. What does he owe now? He owes forgiveness to his fellow servant. Ooh. And so what does it say? He's going to be turned over to prison guards to be tortured until all his debt. What, what gets him out of prison? He's got to forgive the man who owed him 20000 And a lot of times people don't get that. They don't do that. And they don't ever come out of jail because it's not a literal jail. It's a spiritual jail. In the same way, my Heavenly Father will deal with any of you if you do not release forgiveness from your heart toward your fellow believer. Well, how is God going to do that? God is better than this king. He's going to turn us over to what? Over to the prison guards to be tortured. That doesn't sound like he's turning us over to an archangel. He's turning us over to the Holy Spirit. He's turning us over to Satan. In other words, God is getting out of the way and letting Satan have his way with you because you're in his territory now. And you know what it says when, when he put him in prison? It's not a literal prison and it's not a spiritual, you know, prison like an incarceration. What it is, it's a spiritual prison, all right, but it's a prison to where you're cut off because prisoners, they lose the life that they used to live where they used to be able to go their own way and do their own things and not have to ask permission and, and, and not be told what to eat and, and what to do every day. You know, they had freedom. They lost their freedom when they went to prison. When you're in unforgiveness, you lose your freedom. When you're in unforgiveness, you're cut off and removed from circulation. You're not in the general population anymore. When you're in unforgiveness towards somebody, what you did is that you cut yourself off from being in circulation with that person anymore because they wounded you, they hurt you. Welcome to the club. 
Everybody hurts and wounds people. Most people inadvertently do it. They accidentally, they're clumsy. We're all clumsy. There are some people that are um, mean as a rattlesnake. I mean, they are evil to the bone and they are perpetrators of the evil and premeditators of the evil. And so that's a different whole level, but it's going to get the same punishment because even if we stumbled and bumbled and fumbled and we didn't even realize we hurt somebody and you find out later that you did, just like Jesus said, when you're still in the way with this person in, in Matthew chapter 6, go to them and make amends while they're still on this side of the earth, while they're still here. And if they're not, you got to make amends in your heart, at the altar of your heart, and release them so that you can be released. Because that's the debt that's owed. Because the Bible says this in Romans chapter 13, Owe no man anything except to love him. Owe no man anything except to love. And that's in verse 8. And if you're not loving them, you're falling into debt. And if you keep it going and you don't realize it, even if you're ignorant and not really a premeditator of, of seeing what you can get away with, but you're just dumb and you do dumb things and you're compiling a whole bunch of offenses everywhere you go. Jesus once said, woe unto him who offends even the little of the, the least of these, my brothers. It'd be better for him to have a millstone necklace put around his neck and him thrown into the depth of the deepest sea. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound very nice. He said it would be better for you because you have put yourself into the hands of God's arch enemy, your arch enemy, Satan. And Satan is limited. Satan is limited because the Bible says in Jude as well as in Second Peter, that these fallen angels and these demons are held in chains of darkness until the day of judgment. They're held in chains. They can only go so far. You see, the devil hates humanity, hates them. And so why doesn't he just try to kill them all? I mean, he gets away with a lot of them, you know, with cancer and heart disease and diabetes and whatever it might be, you know, a car wreck, a plane crash. He gets away with a lot of it. Um, there's the power of human will. There's the power of the authority of being a human being that gets in its way. But when we start to break certain things down that give him access, in other words, if he's held in chains of darkness, what do chains of darkness look like? Well, number one, a chain of darkness is holding him kind of like a chain on a bulldog or on a pit bull in the backyard. It doesn't let him reach the outer areas of the fenced yard. And so if you jump over the fence and want to get in the, into somebody's window right there and you get within the chain link, you're going to get a bite on your ankle. And so we got to stay away from those areas and walk in the light. And what does the Bible mean when they walk in all the light that you've been given? The, God, the entrance of God's word brings light. So you got to walk according to the knowledge of God's word. Walk in the light as he is in the light so the devil can't reach you. He's chained to darkness. What's darkness? Ignorance. What's darkness? Sin. Bible's, you know, I'm, I'm just quoting the Bible. The Bible says this. What's darkness? Witchcraft and sorceries. Uh, these are areas of darkness. These are all areas, and there's seven altogether. I'm not going to get into all the areas of darkness, but the darkness is, 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 is his realm, and when you step into his realm, bite, bite, uh-oh, bite, bite. I hope you can run fast. And so, 
Forgiveness is where we got to start. We got to have, if you're walking in love, if you're loving people, forgive them. I mean, even if my mother, I didn't realize that she was racist. And she didn't tell me this until I was a full grown adult. And I was playing sports at a junior college nearby, and I got a bunch of friends and brought them over the house a few times. And some African Americans were mixed in the, in the mix of my friends and everything. And some ladies were, um, were along with them too, some African-American ladies. And my mom told me, took me aside later, and she said, don't ever marry one of them. And I said, what? Because I never heard a thing out of her mouth. What are you talking about? She said, don't ever marry one of them. She said, I'll disown you, and society will turn their back on you because that child will be a mix, a mulatto or something like this, she said. And I rebelled at that. I was, I was, I was mortified. I said, I'll marry whoever I want to marry. I'll marry whoever my, I give my heart to. Don't you ever tell me. And I found out later, she told me that she was bust when she was growing up in East L.A. And my mom was, you know, not Hispanic. She was Swedish. They came over from Sweden but they didn't know any difference about the neighborhoods. They lived in East LA because the rent was right. And she got beat to a pulp every day she went to school. She got bused to Washington High School in the downtown area of Los Angeles, which was like 90% African-American. And she had her lunch and her money taken away every day. I never knew that. And she held that. And I never heard her ever utter anything about her. My dad, you know, loved you know, and had Mexican people working for him all the time. When he was a contractor working on houses and when he was a flower grower, he had illegals and he helped them get their green cards and stuff. But my mom, she held that for all those years. And she said that to me and I was appalled. I never knew that she was, was like that. And it's just like I hated that. I was the reverse of that. I loved people. And... Uh, I just rebelled against everything she said and even threatened to do. I just couldn't find an African-American lady to marry when it was time to get, I guess, you know, because it was um, an area that we were living in that when I was in high school, I went through all four years of high school and didn't see an African-American person on our campus until my senior year. And there was only one. It's just because of the area. It wasn't because it was segregated, you know, like a Jim Crow thing. It was just because of the area. It was a surfer's area down in San Diego, uh, North San Diego County. Anyway, the next thing that love does is restores. It restores things. You see, Jesus puts everything back which was lost. He brings it back. Matthew chapter 11, I'm just going to read it real quick. Verses 4 and 5, it said, Jesus answered them, give John this report, John the Baptist, because they, they told him he's in prison, and he's asking, are you the Messiah, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus said, give John this report. The blind see again, the crippled walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised back to life, and the poor and broken now hear of the hope of salvation. In other words, he's returning everybody back to what they're supposed to be, giving them back what they've lost, what was taken from them. I mean, even think about Peter. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter, you know, had a broken heart. Over all of that, I mean, he said he wept bitterly after he realized what he had done, that he was so weak, 
and then Jesus' resurrection takes place, and then Jesus, you know, he had an, he, you know, he appeared and he stayed with his disciples, you know, for several days. He stayed above, uh, he was seen above 50 people, and he stayed in one time to restore Peter's heart. What, he snuck up on them when they were fishing because they went back to the fishing business. And Peter was just heartbroken. He wasn't thinking about ministry. He wasn't thinking about helping people anymore. He, the last thing that he did of any kind of significance, you know, is that he denied Jesus. I mean, he saw Jesus' empty tomb. He ran, you know, with John, and John outraced him to the empty tomb. And then Jesus showed himself to them in the um, house that they're all holed up in. And Thomas was there, and Thomas was doubting everything. And Jesus said, put your finger in my hand and put your fist in my side that seeing you may believe. Peter's right there. You know, but Peter's feeling, you didn't hear a peep out of Peter. Peter usually was popping off all the time. But later when they all went fishing and Jesus was going off, he said, I, I, he has to go and visit other sheep in other pastures. That's what he told him. So he, he did some visiting of people on the earth at that time before he went in his ascension back up to heaven. And so he catches up with them on the lake and they're out there fishing. They fished all night. They caught nothing. And Jesus is kind of, is kind of playing with them. He goes, hey, you know, hey, uh, boys, you catch anything yet? And they said, no, we haven't caught anything. And they recognized him. They, he was different, though. I mean, he wasn't, the last time they saw him, he was a bloody pulp, you know. But he is cleaned up and whole and sound in a glorified body. And so they started whispering among themselves, it's the master, it's Jesus. Peter took off his outer garment and swam to meet him. He beat all the rest of them there. And he came up to Jesus and he had fish cooking already. And then Peter took, I mean, Jesus took Peter aside. And he took him aside and, and, and asked him some questions. You know, Peter wasn't thinking about ministry anymore, but Jesus wasn't finished with him. He said, Peter, do you love me? And he used a play on words, and it's in the Greek language. And if you can read Greek or if you look Greek words up, you'll see it. He said to him, Peter... Do you phileo me? No, he didn't say that. Phileo is, is a friend love, friendly love. You know, like the, the city of Philadelphia, you know, that's the city of brotherly love. And so Jesus didn't use that. Agape is the word he used. Do you agape me? Agape means self-sacrificial. Would you lay your life down for me? And Peter came back and said, yes, master, you know that I phileo you. Peter said it to him. In other words, he said, you know that I'm your friend. Because Peter is broken. He's a broken man right now because Jesus um, was being tried in a kangaroo court. And he was looking at how they were hitting him inside there, striking him and stuff and, and slandering him. And he's looking through windows. And the windows, you know, they didn't have windows with glass. They had windows that were open. And he was listening to all this. And several people came around, and he was one of them. And he denied Jesus because they asked him, weren't you with him? And he goes, no, never. I'm not with him. No, never. And so when he denied him like this, um, he was ashamed of himself. He was broken. He was hurting. He didn't know how to get back you know, to that place. He didn't feel worthy to go on in ministry. And so... Jesus is asking him a hard question. Will you, are you willing to lay your life down for me? And Peter said, Lord, 
I'm willing to be your friend. He said, well, tend my lambs. And he said again, Peter, do you love me? You love me enough to die for me. Peter came back and said, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend. And he said, lead my sheep. Then the third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me enough to be my friend? And Peter said, and he was sad when he, when he said it to him that way the third time. Peter hung his head and he said, Lord, yes, you know that I'm your friend. And then he went to tell Peter something. He said, when you get old, Peter, they're going to tie your hands and they're going to take you, you know, and make you do things you don't want to do and take you to places you don't want to be. And by this means, you will lay your life down for me when you're old, Peter. In other words, Peter couldn't say, yes, I'll lay my life down for you then. And he, and he surely wouldn't do it. He wouldn't even, even, even when an old washwoman asked him, and she doesn't pose any threat, you know, but he didn't do it on the low and just tell her on the side, you know, like, ah, ah don't tell anybody, but I, uh, I was with him. No, he denied him three times, and he was broken. And so Peter fixed him. I mean, Jesus fixed him by asking him three times because Peter denied him three times. And on the third time, Jesus stepped it down and met Peter where Peter was at so he could bring Peter back up to where he's supposed to be. The day will come, Peter, when you're old. In other words, you're not going to get crucified or you're not going to get tortured. You're not going to get uh, martyred when you're young because Peter was still a young man. So he's going to live a while and do a lot. And he did. He said, when you're old, you'll give them your life. You'll lay your life down. You'll let them bind you. You'll let them take you. And this is a matter, or this is the manner in which he would die. And so Jesus, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you know who we're talking about when we say the Father, the Father is called love. You know, in the Bible in 1 John, God is love. And God loved us before we loved him. And by us loving each other, we show the world that we know God. We don't show the world we know God because we can spout off scripture or because we can quote all, all kinds of different things, you know, that sound really wise and, and clever. We, we show the world that we love God by doing God. And what is God? God is love. The Bible doesn't say God is power. He is might, and he surely has power and might. God is love. And so when Jesus said to Philip one time, Philip, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if the Father is love, so is Jesus. Jesus is wall-to-wall -wall love. And so that's what love is doing. He's giving back to people who lost what they had. Peter lost his place. Peter lost his nerve. Peter lost his heart. And it says in the Bible, Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted and to bring it back to them. The next thing that love does is release. We get released. Jesus lets us go without the weight of guilt on us. I want you to go with me over to John chapter 8. I'm going to read from the mirror translation now. John chapter 8. And it's about the woman caught in the very act of adultery. The woman caught in the very act of adultery. This is, once again, love is on trial. Once again, love is on display. Once again, love is being seen by people in motion. Once again, love is coming up against the systems of the day. The religious system of the day is going to confront love. 
and is going to combat love. In verse 1, it says, while Jesus proceeded to the Mount of Olives, early dawn, at early dawn, he was back at the temple where many people sought to be near him, to hear him teach, and he sat down and taught. Verse 3, meanwhile, the law professors and Pharisees led a woman to him who was forcefully seized in the act of adultery and made her stand in the midst, in the middle of the throng of people where everyone could stare at her. Verse 4, Jesus said, or excuse me, uh, in verse 4, it says, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught committing adultery. Now Moses commanded us in the law that adulterers should be stoned. What would you say? You see, they wouldn't even have gone to Jesus if Jesus wasn't on the earth and walking there. They would have taken her to some great open field where a lot of people could come and watch because they want that to be a lesson. They'd stone her to death because that's what they did. They stoned people. You know, in the Middle East right now, there's people that are that radical and they do that right now. They stone women for committing adultery. And committing adultery is a bad thing. And even in the Old Testament, under the laws of Moses, it was punishable by death. But fallen man wants to bring forward all these legalistic ways to approach God and, 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 and to make it you know, kind of seem like we don't need a, a Savior that is God in human form. We can actually, by keeping what the commandments are, we can actually earn our own salvation because they don't understand grace and mercy to where anything that we touch is screwed up. Anything that we try to make happen for ourselves, we mess up. Um, if we could have saved ourselves or saved our neighbors, Jesus could have stayed in heaven. But of course, God had to send him because we can't. And so they say in verse 5, you don't think Jesus knows what the law says? Of course he does. Now Moses commanded us in the law that adulterers should be stoned. What would you say? Verse 6, they obviously had a clear agenda to snare him in their efforts to build a case of lawlessness against him. Jesus bent down and began to write with his finger on the ground, distracting attention from the girl. They continued to interrogate him. Then he stood up and looked them in the eyes and said, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. That would go ahead. Anybody that doesn't have sin, start the parade. Start the stoning. And again, verse 8, he bent down and continued writing on the ground. Verse 9, they began to walk away, one after the other, beginning with the oldest, because the oldest have been alive longer and sinned more. I'm, I'm adding that. It doesn't say it in the text. But that's, that's why, because the oldest, they know that they're messed up. The youngest, you know, they think they're still wet behind the ears. They haven't, you know, made as many mistakes as the older people have already. Until Jesus was left alone with the girl, still standing where her accusers dumped her. Mm, verse 10. When Jesus stood up again, there was no one there except the woman. So Jesus asked her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she answered, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither am I condemning you. Go and sin no more. Never again believe a lie about yourself. I love the mirror translation putting that in there because that's exactly what it means. When he said, go and sin no more, don't sin anymore. Don't believe the lie about yourself that you can't help yourself. You know, because he's bringing in a new, a new era. He's bringing in a new era, and the new era is already there because Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus didn't commit any sin, and that's why he went to the cross representing mankind as the sinless Lamb of God. 
But the Pharisees just quoted the law to him that she's supposed to be uh, stoned to death. And yet he didn't allow that to happen. Well, actually, he really didn't block it. He just asked them a question they couldn't answer. You know, like, he who was without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Anybody without sin? And nobody was without sin. And they all walked away. So a new interpretation came out of that scripture. And it came to a new era to where in the Old Testament, under the law, that was carried out. And God wasn't mad. You know, God, you know, needed, because sin that are that is so grievous, you know, a grievous that God would command capital punishment, it's like a cancer. It's got to be removed from society. You know, like it was that way toward people that were perverse as well and stuff. And so God would have them removed. You know, capital punishment, you know, was initiated by God. And so one of the things that we understand about Jesus is it says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It says it twice. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So when it says even, it's talking about a different death. The first death it talks about wasn't physical. It was spiritual and symbolic. Jesus was walking among the people in flesh and blood form before the crucifixion as a dead man. I mean, he was dead to society in the sense of being controlled by the, by the sways and the swings and the, and the ebb and the flow of society. He was dead, you know, to the systems of the world. He was dead to sin. You know, he wouldn't allow sin. He was tempted, you know, in three points, you know, like we, yet without sin, the Bible says. And so Jesus was a dead man walking already. And... and in the world, they have a saying, you know, um, the most dangerous people on the face of the earth are people that have nothing to lose. I mean, when you've already lost everything, you're very dangerous to people that can't threaten to take anything away from you because you let it go already. And so, you know, Jesus couldn't be threatened with death because he's already dead. He wasn't going to die until it was his time to go on the cross, literally. But spiritually and symbolically, he died way before that because you see, for him to walk away from that woman that day and she goes her way, he goes his way, he's breaking the law unless the law got satisfaction with somebody dying. And the law did because it was Jesus. Because he died for that woman even before he went to the cross and died for that woman and all the rest of humanity. And he did that everywhere he went because lepers... You know, leprosy was associated with sin. That was an open show of sin because it attached the attacked the body, especially the skin, the outer portion of the body. It wasn't an inside, you know, like an organ failure or something like this. It was the, the largest organ of the body, the external organ of skin. And it was a, 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 a malady they had no cure for. And it would eventually end up killing the person, you know, and he, lepers came and you can't touch them. They're a highly contagious virus. And he touched them, and they touched him, and he wasn't concerned about it. Why? Because he's a dead man. Because dead people aren't afraid of catching anything. You know, because they've already died. Well, you see, the Bible says that it's appointed to every man, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed to every man once to die, and then the judgment. Well, I got the good news for you Christians out there. 
Um, it, we, it's already a done deal. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I was co-crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But I am still here visible as a human in the life I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the only way I can pull off this walking dead thing is <laughs> by living by faith. That's what Jesus was doing. He was, he was the initiator of that. And so listen, listen. I'm going to make it real easy for you. There's no way on God's green earth you're going to be able to forgive the people that molested you when you were a kid. There's no way on God's green earth you're going to be able to forgive the people that raped you, the people that killed your son or your daughter. There's no way. As a human being, you can actually forgive them. Unless you die. I, I, I preached a message one time. It's called Dying to Love. And it sounds like, you know, a guy that's just dying to find a, a, the love of his life, just dying to fall in love, just dying to experience love. Nope, it was a Bible message. Because it's impossible to love your enemies, like the scriptures said that we just read. It's impossible to love your enemies. They're your enemies. It's impossible to do good to them that have hurt you. It's impossible. You can't do it in and of your human natural self. It's only possible by supernatural intervention from a, a recreated human being that with the Holy Spirit on the inside of us that shed the love of God wall to wall on the inside of our hearts. We have already experienced that, whether you feel it or not. It's not a feeling. And so Jesus is teaching these things that they couldn't even begin to practice yet because they weren't born again. They weren't spirit-filled. They didn't even have scripture to stand on. But he's telling them this because he knew that these words of his were going to move forward and we would be able to apply them through the new birth so that we can represent or represent God in human form even though we're not God, I, I, you know, I had a beginning, you had a beginning. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not all-knowing, omniscient. I, you know, we're human, but we are wall-to-wall -wall God on the inside of us. That's the beauty of salvation. He saved us. The third thing is repair. You see, Jesus fixes everything that's broken. When we can't fix it, we can't. One time I was so brokenhearted over something that happened and things that were people were saying about me and, and it weren't true and I, I couldn't find all the pieces of my heart. And I cried out to him, you know, I was going to go take matters into my own hands. I was going to go make a big fuss at a church where I was being slandered. And I knew exactly what they were doing because I knew what time their services were. I was going to go there right during the service and call some people out. And as I was driving, God, he smote me with his spirit. And I started crying. And he said, son, son, put your hands down and I'll put my hands up and I'll fight for you. Because I know you hate injustice. And I was crying when I was driving. I started slowing down and I pulled to the side of the road and I said, Okay, Jesus, but you got to do something for me. you got to put my heart back together again because I can't find it. I can't find it. It's so hurt right now. I can't find the pieces. And I turned the, the car around and 
went back home and he put my heart back together. He fixes things. Hmm. And I just want to remind you of what he did with Peter. He fixed Peter. He fixed Peter's broken heart. He fixed Peter's low esteem, you know, his low um, estimation of himself because he couldn't look himself in the mirror. You know, he couldn't stand himself. Because unbeknown to you, when he said in the beginning of chapter 21 of the book of John, leading up to their fishing expedition, he said, I'm going fishing. Nope. He actually said in the Greek language, I'm going back to fishing. Because that's where he came from. He was going back and picking up the old business. And his brother, Andrew, and others were going right with him. They followed because he was a natural leader. And Jesus knew that, you know, he was the right one to be the early leader of the church after he got his... his uh, his heart fixed, his life fixed, his confidence back, you know, his boldness back. I mean, you see him in Acts chapter uh, 2 um, on the day of Pentecost. You know, he's one of the people in the upper room that got filled with the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people came to be, you know, Christians, you know, through um, the things that happened that day supernaturally. And they went out and preached, you know, this is what, you know, it was said in the prophet in the book of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, in Joel chapter 3, you know, to where they're just quoting that this is what God said, that he's going to put his spirit inside of us and give us a new heart and things like this. But also, um, in chapter 3, Peter and John, the other disciple, you know, were at walking into the gate one day to the temple, and there was a man laying there that was crippled in his legs that Jesus probably walked by a hundred times. But Jesus left people for his disciples to do the same things he did. So he was begging for, for uh, money, and they said, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And they, they pulled him up by the arms, and his legs were made straight, and he ran and, and started dancing, and people came coming, running. And, and so they found out what Peter and John did. They put him in the jail, and then they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the same people that tried Jesus just a few weeks before that and put him on a cross, and they said, by what authority, by what right did you do this to the crippled man? And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, it said, bold as a lion, he said, by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Put it right back in their faces. And so you see, Peter lost his nerve, lost his courage, lost his boldness, and regained it. Right there at that lake, at that morning cookout, while they're eating fish, he got it back. Because Jesus is love, and love repairs. Repairs the breach, repairs you know the things that were broken. And last but not least is the word renew. Renew. And so the word re, just like refried, you know, like refried beans, you know, that means they're fried once, and then refried means they're fried again. Well, renewed means it was new, and renewing, you know, means it's made new again. So we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is also in the mirror translation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. In other translations, it says, Behold, all things 
are, are passed away and all things are made new. And you think, well, okay, um, it's talking about salvation, it's talking about the new creation, but it's also talking about in terms of passed away. That's what we say when people die, they passed away. And so all of the old fallen mankind, you know, that we got from Adam when he sinned in the garden, you know, it passed, it passed down and handed down for, for thousands of years. That passed away, and all things are made new. Well, you could actually use the word renew, because Adam and Eve were created, and they were the brand spanking new, new, and then they lost their salvation, or they lost their relationship with God, and then they, you know, passed away themselves, and thousands of years later, Jesus comes, and Jesus restores and he renews. And so love is in the business of renewing things. And it could be even renewing uh, relationships in our life, renewing friendship, renewing um, you know, things that God had given you to do and you stopped doing it because um, it got tough. You lost, you know, you lost money. You know, God gave you your own business and then the, the whole thing that happened with the economy collapsing and everything like this and you lost it. And uh, you know, these seen signs, you know, under new ownership or under new management. You know, see, same old, you know, turkey shop or chicken shop, you know, where you're making, you know, turkey or chicken sandwiches, but all of a sudden, you know, somebody else bought it or somebody else, you know, opened it, you know, after it has been closed for a while and stuff. And so this newness that we have is not that God just, you know, um, cleaned us up a little bit. God joined his spirit to our broken and fallen human spirit, and we became a new creation that never before existed. Let's read from the Mirror Translation, verse 17. Now in the light of your co-inclusion in his death and resurrection, whoever you thought you were before, in Christ you are a brand new person. The old ways of seeing yourself and everyone else are over. Acquaint yourself with the new. In other words, you got to get your mind wrapped around the new. You need to get your mind wrapped around the new. That was in verse 17. Verse 18, the idea of mankind's co-inclusion in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is entirely God's doing. To now realize that God has indeed brought final closure to the old and for us to see everything and everyone in this new light is so simply is, is to simply see what God has always known to be true about us in Christ. We are not debating human experience, opinion, or their contribution. This is exactly what God believed. In, Christ, in Jesus Christ, God exchanged equivalent value to redeem us to himself. He went to the highest extreme in this act of reconciliation to persuade us of our original worth. This God has given us as the mandate of our ministry. This is our mandate. We're to do the same thing with other people. We're to look at them through God's eyes. We're to look at them as though, as though they are already saved. You know, Jesus never said that you need to save the lost. No. He talked about the lost as the, as the harvest. He said the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. He didn't say the lost is plenty. In other words, there's many lost. He said the harvest. He calls them harvest. In other words, they're a harvest of grain, 
that is profitable to the master because they're not weeds. You know, they are not what they call um, tares in the Bible or darnel, which is a, an imitation wheat, but it's a weed. He sees them transformed into wheat, which is edible, which is uh, a sustaining, a, a, a thing that sustains life in the Middle East. They lived on wheat harvesting and stuff. And so he says, the harvest is plenty. And so you got he changes the mindset. The mindset is that not just us Christians that are reading this Bible and finding out about our co-inclusion in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's about the whole of humanity is co-included in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is our mandate. The last sentence that I read in that 18th verse from the Mirror Translation, he went to the highest extreme in this act of reconciliation to persuade us of our equal, or, or excuse me, of our original worth. In other words, back to what we were worth when God first created us. This God has given to us as the mandate of our ministry. Verse 19, our ministry declares that Jesus did not act independently of his Father. God was present, and who is God? God is love. And so love was present in Christ when he reconciled the total cosmos to himself. Deity and humanity embraced in him. The fallen state of mankind was deleted. Their trespasses would no longer count against them. He now announces his friendship with every individual from within us. In other words, we're supposed to do that from within the depths of our own heart toward every individual. Verse 20. The voice God has in Christ, he now has in us. In other words, he spoke through his son and is now speaking through us. We are God's ambassadors. Our lives exhibited the urgency of God to persuade everyone to realize the reconciliation of their redeemed identity. Let me just get rid of God for a minute. Doesn't that sound blasphemous? But I'm just going to substitute the word God for love. The voice love has in Christ, he now has in us. We are love's ambassadors. Our lives exhibit the urgency of love to persuade everyone to realize and the reconciliation of their redeemed identity. Verse 21, this is the divine exchange. He who knew no sin embraced our distortion. He appeared to be without, he appeared to be without form. This was the mystery of God's prophetic poetry or love's prophetic poetry. He was disguised in our distorted image and marred with our iniquities. He took our sorrows, our pain, our shame to his grave and birthed his righteousness in us. He took our sins and we became his innocence. That's what the son of the father's love did for every one of us. This is a love letter. This is a love message. This is dedicated to this love month of February, and I hope that it's beneficial to you. I hope maybe you listen to it a few times because I, I shared a lot of things in the scriptures, but also in just things that I had come to my heart during the time. Um, I believe that this is revolutionary. Uh, there is nothing greater than getting a revelation of God's love, of God who is love and God who does love and what it means to be born of love and what it means to live out that same love to mankind in the name of Jesus. 
Thank you guys. I love you all. And until next time.